Brethren, I want to thank you for praying for my back, among other things. And uh, hopefully what I said last Lord's Day made sense with the amount of piperine and turmeric running through my bloodstream. I'm not exactly sure what happened last Sunday, but um, I want to say that, uh, brethren, this is crucial that we understand something. What we are going through in this discussion of the church, which this particular section has taken longer than the other portions of the series, but this discussion of the church, what a church is, is absolutely crucial. We have to understand what, what it means when we talk about the household of God, the church of the living God, the fact that we're the pillar and support of the truth. All of these things have been crucial because if we don't really understand our identity as the church, then we'll falter and fail in terms of our actual ministry in this world. When I began this portion of the series, I intended to land somewhere in 1 Peter 4 and 5. Because I believe that if we're going to talk about the church in summary form, which is what we're doing, like I said last Lord's Day, if we did a thorough series on the church, we could at least take a year on this. We're not going to do that. But just to summarize the concepts of what a church is, what the church is, I wanted to make sure that we landed in 1 Peter 4 and 5. And last time, as we were wrapping up chapter 4, talking about the conduct of the church, the conduct of the body of Christ... We were reminded of the fact that we are to be fervent in our love for one another. And we talked about why that's such an important concept. And remember, the word fervent bears the idea of having an extended hand that reaches out to others such that we are eager to extend love and mercy and even forgiveness to others. We were enjoined as well to be stewards of the manifold grace of God, understanding that God has given us all uh, the the measure of grace that he has assigned to each and every one of us, and that there are those who have gifts of speaking and teaching, and there are those who have gifts of servitude. Whatever the giftedness that is given to us, we're all to use those gifts ultimately together for, again, the glory of God and for the upbuilding of one another. Peter as well enjoins us and forbids us from being surprised by the trials and afflictions that surround us. Jesus told Peter that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. But we have to remember that the gates of hell are constantly opening up and seeking to unleash havoc against the body of Christ. And that's why we must not be surprised when we are being afflicted. And then he warns his readers that as Christians, we should never be found to be murderers, thieves, evildoers, or a troublesome meddler. But he says if we were to suffer, and I'm summarizing, it should be as a Christian and doing so without shame. But then we came to verse 17 where he says this, and this was really the focus of our study last time. And I have to say to you, I said it last time, I'm going to say it again here this morning. Verse 17 is, of 1 Peter 4 is a very crucial text And I think it was just providential and timely that it was on the Lord's Day that we were able to consider that verse together, where Peter says that it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. This is a crucial concept. This helps us to understand that no matter what happens in this world and whatever you might be considering, whatever you might consider as being important in this world, the thing that we have to keep as the top priority is what takes place within the body of Christ. Of all your duties and responsibilities and interactions with the world, remember this, brethren, what we do as the body of Christ is of chief importance because judgment begins here. This is why last Lord's Day I mentioned R.L. Dabney. And I mentioned the fact that he promoted a very disturbing racialism 
a doctrine that he tried to justify by the scriptures. I didn't have time to get into all this, and, uh, but, um, but he actually tries to justify his racialism and his bigotry by means of scripture. What he was promoting was really akin to Darwinism, not the Bible. And it was striking that he would even teach in a systematic theology on the golden rule only to conclude that he had a license and right to treat other human beings as mere chattel whose lives, labors, and locomotion were not their own, but they could be taken possession of by one who would own that person. I don't know how you go from the golden rule to that. Well, I've read his reasoning and argument, but it's a mess. And even in his ecclesiastical, uh, his, his paper which he wrote, where he wrote against the ecclesiastical equality of black preachers in our church and their right to rule over white Christians is the title. He says, and this is a quote, he refers to African Americans as being an inferior and hostile race. This is why I said last Lord's Day, I'm done with Dabney, And even though he was introduced to me in seminary, and even though he is quoted by preachers, I'm done. After discovering that teaching, I thought to myself, yeah, well, he has good teaching in other areas, but this doctrine kind of pollutes everything like a little leaven that leavens the whole lump of dough. What's interesting to me, and the reason why I brought up Dabney is because we can imagine that the influence of Dabney is, is long gone, but it's not. His legacy and influence actually continues on. In fact, let me just put it this way, and I was talking to somebody after the services last Lord's Day. Let me repeat what I said uh, in that conversation. The Southern Baptist Convention in the 19th century promoted slavery. They supported and promoted chattel slavery. Have things changed? Well, I would say not necessarily because now the Southern Baptist Convention is moving in the direction of the social justice movement which seeks to promote racial bigotry now against non-blacks. In a sense, what they're doing is they're taking one filthy garment and exchanging it for another. And this is dangerous. This is dangerous. If we really understand that judgment begins here in the household of God, among the people of God, then that should make us stand on our toes and be very alert and on guard concerning what we do in this household. This is his house. We go by his rules. And we don't infuse and impute our own ideas and own opinions and whatever into the text of Scripture, corrupting, therefore, the foundation upon which the church stands. We have to be committed to that. Now, as we move from 1 Peter 4 to 1 Peter 5, I want to say to you that we're, oh, we're going to be summarizing so much. Forgive me. There's so much in these texts, and we're not going to get through all that's there. But I want us, brethren, to glean some principles, some very important and crucial principles about what it means to be a church, what it means for me to be a shepherd in a church, and what it means for all of us to be sheep, the sheep of God within the church, I want us to glean some basic principles from the text of 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then I'm going to go back to verses 1 and 2 and focus on those two verses here this morning. But if you have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, Peter says this, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God 
and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That last expression I could take months on, but we won't. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be sober of spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our focus this morning, as I said, will be set upon verses 1 and 2, and not all of verse 2, but the beginning of verse 2, where he says, in verse 1, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And then he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. How striking it is that the apostle Peter, who was commanded by Jesus to feed his lambs, shepherd his sheep, and feed his sheep, he now takes that instruction and gives it to those whom he calls his fellow elders. This is what Peter is doing. The very instructions that he received from Christ, he's now sharing with those elders, those ministers of the gospel, who had the duty and responsibility of shepherding the flock of God. As I said, there are many lessons within this simple command. But the first thing I'd like for us to do is to consider this expression when he says, shepherd the flock of God in verse 2. Notice the language. We are, as a church, we are the flock, he says, of God. The flock of God. Do you remember when we went through John chapter 21 and we looked at those instructions, those commands given by Jesus to Peter, where he says, feed what? My lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep, the possessive pronoun that he repeats again and again and again, is a reminder to us of the fact that we as the people of God are his possession. We are his. We are the flock of God. It's amazing how just three words in the Greek, though just a small portion of the text, it's actually massive and powerful. In some sense, it's like an anchor. When you think about an anchor relative to the size of maybe like a cruise ship, a transatlantic cruise ship, an anchor compared to the size of the ship is really, really small. And yet it has the power and capacity to anchor that ship and keep it in its place in order to keep it from drifting away into dangerous waters. It has a very important duty and responsibility, the anchor does. This, these words are like an anchor. They anchor our thinking and our understanding about who we are as the church. We are the flock of God. We are the flock of God. We're his possession and no one else's. For me, as a pastor, this is a needful reminder that I have to consider again and again and again. I don't own a single one of you. God does. I have a stewardship 
before God to you as an under-shepherd, but God owns you, not me. In fact, I'm just a temporary steward. For how long, I don't know. Again, James 4 warns us against the presumption of tomorrow. I don't have the guarantee of tomorrow. I could be dead by tonight. I've been having several conversations lately, the last several weeks, where I've I've told people, you know, what would you do if I were gone? Because the reality is, is that the duty of the church is to pursue the truth of God with or without me. I'm just a temporary steward. I'm here to guide and direct and preach and lead and shepherd But at the end of the day, the body of Christ still has the same responsibility to honor Christ by means of his word. Take me out of the picture. That doesn't change. So my calling is not just temporal, but subordinate to Christ. The fact that you're his possession, we're all his possession, means that the shepherd has to remember that his responsibility and his authority is subordinate to that of Christ. And so, therefore, he must be dedicated, the shepherd must be dedicated to the authority of Scripture alone, not eclipsing that authority by means of man-made tradition or creeds. Christ's voice is the voice that should be proclaimed from the pulpit. I'm an imperfect vessel, and so my task is constantly to get out of the way. My goal is, is by the preaching of the word of God, that there would be the conveyance of Christ's voice, Christ's authority, his truth, not mine, because I don't have any truth. And like I said already, the fact that mine is a temporal responsibility and calling Reminds me of the fact that earthly pastors come and go, but Christ remains the everlasting chief shepherd of his people. And that never changes. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I use the word under shepherd. Because that reminds me, and it reminds us all, that I am beneath the authority of Christ, and it has to be understood that way all the time. The reason why we're called the church of God is also important, the, 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 um, the sheep of God. The reason why this is important also is crucial for our, all of us because this anchors our thinking about our responsibilities before God. You are not your own. Think of this. You are not your own. This is sometimes a hard thing for the American mindset, and I'm not talking to you, but when you talk to people in in the culture and everything, people in the culture, they're their own possession. I think somebody said to me uh, last week that um, a self-made man is really kind of a misnomer. It's like we we have this independent spirit. We think that we're, you know, we can stand on our own, and we are our own. And and no, um, if you're a child of God, understand this. You are not your own. God owns you. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb so that we would serve not ourselves, but him who redeemed us. By the way, Earlier on in 1 Peter, Peter talked about the fact that we are God's possession. He says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is 1 Peter 2.9, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then later on in chapter 2, he then says this. He says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Now, brethren, I don't know how often you're in the habit of referring to yourself as a bond slave of God. And sadly, um, because of our culture and a lot of the confusion that, that, that we have over biblical language, We've made the word slave into um, 
a point of confusion. There's a lot of confusion about the whole idea of, of slavery, what the Bible says about it. This is why I've written extensively on this subject. But it's enough to say here this morning that we're bond slaves of God. We're not to be ashamed of that. In fact, that's actually the greatest privilege in the world is to be a bond slave of God. But God does not possess us like chattel. Instead, he possesses us as those who are members of his household. When we use the word bond slave, we have to understand in the English, this is, comes from the word bond man or a man who is bound. And that imagery is crucial because we find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 when Paul called himself a doulos, a bond slave for Jesus' sake, and then described the nature of his servitude a few verses later where he says that the love of Christ controls, suneke, controls or constrains us. And that word, suneke, control or constrain, bears the idea and imagery of somebody who is in bonds. What are the bonds that we wear as the bond slaves of God? They're the bonds of love. That's why I say there's no greater privilege in life than to be a bond slave of God. We used to be slaves of sin, but now we're the bond slaves of God, held forever by his eternal and unfailing love. There is no greater privilege. The implications of this are massive when we really stop to think about it. Because without this perspective of our being God's possession, such that we are to live out our lives not for ourselves but for his glory, the implications of this are massive. If we don't ground our thinking in this understanding, we might drift away into dangerous thinking which presumes that we have freedoms that the Lord has not granted to us. And so I'm not free to get into the pulpit and preach my own ideas and subjective opinions. And I think this verse means whatever. If I ever start talking like that, brethren, take me aside and have a conversation with me. It doesn't matter what I think. The real question is, and every time I go to the, the scriptures, whether I'm studying the Old Testament and the Hebrew or the New Testament and the Greek, the major question, the fundamental question I'm looking at is, what does the text say? Because that governs what I need to say, and that's it. By the way, when I talk to younger men who are going into the ministry or into seminary, I warn them about developing a dependency on commentaries. Because if you go to a commentary, you start reading what so-and-so says about this, and another person says, you know, and then you start getting ideas about what the text says. If you've not done your homework, if you don't know the original language and, and are studying the languages and studying the text itself first, and even if you don't know Greek and Hebrew, start here in the English. It doesn't matter, but at the end of the day, if you're not starting here, then you might be led astray by someone else who has an opinion about the text that is maybe wrong. You know what's funny about the internet? You can have a bad idea that is replicated and replicated and replicated, and it's all over the place, and it looks like it's authoritative because it's ubiquitous and everybody is repeating the same thing. That doesn't make it right. I'm not free to preach me. I'm a bond slave. As a bond slave, it's my privilege and joy to preach him, to preach his word. How does this apply to all of us as the body of Christ, as the flock of God? Well, we corporately are not free to seek out ear tickling preaching. So this goes for me, but it also goes for you. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warns against the appetites, the corrupt appetites of those who would seek out ear-tickling preaching. He says, 
commanding Timothy, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves, listen to the language, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their idios epithumias, their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to muthus, myths, things that are believed to be true but that are not. I have a question for you. Why do ear-tickling preachers exist and thrive? It's because of the churches who crave such ear-tickling preaching, who seek not the truth of God but seek out their own desires, and they bring in men who will tickle their ears and give them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear from Almighty God. Brethren, as a pastor, I need to have a Berean spirit each and every day. You need to have a Berean spirit each and every day. From the pulpit to the pew, it's the same. We have one authority, one Lord, one chief shepherd, and we all answer to him. This is a needful anchor to our souls. We are the flock of God, each and every one of us. We're his possession, and therefore we are to live for him in everything. Now, extend this further, and look with me then again at the same command, where Peter says, in joining elders, he says, shepherd the flock of God, and then he says what? Among you, among you. That little prepositional phrase, again, this is another moment where you have just a really tiny expression, but it's, it's massive in terms of its implications. This points to the idea of an identifiable flock of sheep who are associated together within a local church in connection with the leadership of that church. In other words, there's a sense in which the elders know who the sheep are. These are the people who are among you, whom you've given a a charge and a task to shepherd. So there's a sense in which there's a reciprocal knowledge of who the sheep are, from the shepherd to the sheep and from the sheep to the shepherd. I would say to you that where there is uncertainty in a local church regarding this relationship of the shepherd to the sheep and the sheep to the shepherd, you're going to have problems. And I say this from experience. There is within this expression, shepherd the flock of God among you, there is within this expression an inference to the idea of membership. People say, well, is membership in the Bible? Yeah, the concept of membership is in the Bible. Many examples, and again, if we had more time to go through the series, um, we would really get into this further, but Romans 12, 5, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We're all members of the body of Christ. Again, that speaks to the idea of a coherent knowledge and understanding of who we are, how we identify in Christ, and who we are in relationship to one another. But when you have ambiguity about who is the flock and who is the flock among the the shepherds, when you have ambiguity in that regard, you do have problems. And this is why I do believe that church membership in some form, is important. Now, let me say this. Over the years, I've seen a lot of different things, uh, a lot of different approaches to the question of church membership. I've, I've known churches that have no membership. And this obviously runs the risk of having an ambiguous identity as a church. Many churches today are filled with wheat and tares, uh, believers and unbelievers. And when you have this kind of a revolving door where you don't really know who's coming in and out, 
that is a problem because the shepherds are enjoined to shepherd the flock among you. Who are these people? Do you know them? Do you know how they're doing? Do you know if they're making progress in their lives? Are you interacting with them? What kind of help do they need? All those questions have to be addressed. And then there are some churches that do have membership, but if they fail to regularly evaluate the question, who are these people, who are the, who are the members of this church, then you're often left with a bloated membership role that becomes basically meaningless and not reflecting reality. Years ago, um, Sandra remembers this, there was a church that I contacted and conversed with, and they had, uh, I think, people, uh, something like 20 people in their regular assembly. Their membership role was 300 or something like that. They're a little overdue in purging the membership role. You know, you know, it's an interesting thing that all those people could just show up one day and just decide to vote on something, and, you know, they've never been there for years. I've seen this many, many, many times over the years. Things like that make the concept of membership really meaningless, right? Because at that point, you're just, it's just uh, putting your name on a, on a roster, but there's no relationship. That's why I love the expression, shepherd the flock among you. This really speaks of the idea of a relationship of a shepherd to the sheep and the sheep to the shepherd. There is a mutual understanding and knowledge between the two. In fact, we're going to be getting into the way in which this is really fleshed out next Lord's Day when he enjoins elders to exercise oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Again, the idea of a specific identity of a group of people, but proving yourselves to be examples among the flock. That's a powerful statement. You need to minister to them. They need to see who you are. You can have a membership role. You can have a roster. You can have names on it. But it could be utterly meaningless if you don't have this dynamic in place. You know, Peter had many lessons on this subject of this idea of who are the sheep among the shepherd? Who are the sheep in association with the shepherd? Remember in John chapter 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000 at Tiberias near the Sea of Galilee, and then we read that Jesus then, Christ then crossed the sea to Capernaum, and many who were fed at Tiberias found Christ, caught up with him, and said, I always love it when they ask, uh, there's so many questions in the Bible that are raised to Jesus and he never answers them. Rabbi, when did you get here? Oh, about five o'clock. You know, I, I don't know why this is an important question, but they find him and they ask him, you know, when did you get here? And what's Jesus' response? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. If there are a paraphrased version of this, you would maybe translate it as this way. You think I'm a mobile food truck, and I'm not. And then he said in verse 35 of John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. You're near me and within the proximity of my words, but you're not really with me. And by the way, as soon as I bring up the example of Christ, we have to remember Jesus knew the hearts of men perfectly. As an under-shepherd of Christ, I don't know the thoughts, motives, and intentions of any, but I have a hard enough time understanding my own. I, I know I, I keep saying that, but it, it's, I just want to make sure the lesson is getting through. I don't know motives. I look at actions, and that's we are to look at fruit, but 
But Jesus was able to say to these individuals right away, you don't believe. You're treating me like a moving food truck. You're not here for me to believe in me. But notice this in verse 66 of John 6. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They're gone. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I can't leave. You know, it's striking to me, and I know I've said this already. I think I've said it already once before. Jesus said that one of them, later on in the same text, that one of them was a devil, Judas. Again, he's omniscient, all-knowing, sovereign. He knew this, but the disciples didn't. They didn't even get it at the moment of the last Passover. Lord, is it I? They had no idea. You know what's interesting? It, for us, it takes time. We see actions. We get to know people. It's hard to get to know people. It takes work. It takes time. With Jesus, he knows everything, so it doesn't take him any time to know what is needed to be known about a human heart. But for us, it takes time. And as I minister to people, I have to give it time. But at the end of the day, we have to make an assessment as to who are those who are truly among us. Who are the individuals who, by a, common, a scriptural common confession of faith, who have come together and have gathered together in order to worship the Lord as the flock of God, who are these people? We have to be able to have the dynamic, the relational dynamic with one another such that we know who we are from one to another? Are we really members of one another in the household of God? That takes work, it takes time, it takes relationships, and it takes us knowing enough about another person to know if they truly are living as a believer, living as an active servant within the body of Christ, endeavoring to encourage and build up one another rather than tearing down the household of God. That takes time. One of the things I had, one of the things that I've been working through here as I've been getting to know you is that I've been wanting to and endeavoring to understand, as I've said already many times, where I, where I am, knowing something about you, knowing something about the church. It's history, it's culture. And I know many of you have asked about membership classes, and I, I've got to say that I look forward to moving forward with me, the membership process, with classes and interviews for those seeking membership. I just want to, first of all, thank you. For those, for those of you who are uh, still awaiting that, I want to thank you for your patience because we are in a transition period. I'm not sure how else to say this. This is a work in progress. There are still matters that need to be worked out within the leadership itself. And this is so because the church's leadership is called to be on guard for one another before it is on guard for the flock. I say that because of the principle that we have in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, where Paul, after, as he's about to leave Ephesus to go to Jerusalem, he says to the elders there, he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There we go again. Who owns the church? It is his possession purchased with his shed blood. But we cannot miss the order of what is being said here. For you to be men who shepherd and guard the church, the first thing you have to do is learn how to be on guard for one another. If you don't do the first thing, you can't do the second. Well, not well anyway. When I get in my truck, I don't uh, turn on the engine and then hit the gas pedal and then figure out what direction I'm going in. Not usually anyway. And in the military, when we were given M16 training, we were never told, ready, shoot, aim. It's not how you do it. Knowing and understanding the health, vitality, and direction of the leadership is the essential precursor to really everything else. So we hope to get there soon. By the way, it's taken time to get to know Scott and his lovely family, and it's been a privilege to do so. And I would say this, that uh, the Lord has put Scott through some very significant trials and tests, and I've, it's really been uh, something that God has ordained, and I didn't really expect or plan, but it has been an opportunity for me to see his mettle be tested. Because honestly, you don't really know a person until they go through trials. This is an anchor to our soul. We're the flock of God. We're his possession. We're the flock of God among the leadership, identifying together as one body, being members of one another, endeavoring to serve a common goal, and that is the glory of Christ in everything. But this takes work. It takes relationships, the development of relationships, whereby we can build up one another, encourage one another, and uphold one another in prayer and in the ministry of admonition, which Paul, in Romans chapter 15, he commends the church at Rome for their ability to admonish one another, to encourage one another, to challenge one another in terms of the scriptures and being refined by the scriptures. That bears the idea of a mutual bond and relationship. And that has to be in place in the leadership first. I want to close with this verse. And this is a verse that I could take, just this verse alone could take months. It's so packed. Ephesians 4 and verse 25. Ephesians 4 and verse 25. Paul says this, <clears throat> Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are, what? Members of one another. There's the concept of membership. We have a mutual bond in Christ. We're connected to one another. Therefore, we're to conduct ourselves in this way. And by the way, the language that is inherent in this text is reflective of the foremost commandment, the second component of it, whereby we're enjoined to love our neighbor. That is rooted in Leviticus 19, where we're told not to go about as a slanderer, nor as one who hates others or who takes vengeance, or who bears a grudge, but it says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we're going to love one another, we have to speak the truth in love. We have to speak the truth in love. And by the way, it's interesting to me, don't miss the participial premise. 
laying aside falsehood. You say to yourself, well, wouldn't it be enough for Paul just to say, speak the truth? If you're speaking the truth, you're not speaking falsehood. But isn't it interesting that we as humans have to be told to do both? Set aside falsehood, speak truth. When you vow, when you make, a, when you make the declaration in a court of law to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, remember, the reason why humans have to be told to do that is because we might sneak in a little bit of falsehood. I said the truth. I said a little bit of an erroneous thing too, but, you know, I said mostly truth. No. In order to speak the truth, what do you have to do? You first have to lay aside falsehood. Because God calls us to be open, honest, and transparent with one another, and if we're not going to do that, everything falls apart. When I was 32 years old, third year in seminary, I'm going to close with this. 32 years old, third year in seminary, serving as an interim pastor at Valley of the Falls Community Church. I had a gentleman come up to me one day in my tiny little office. And I mean, it was like a closet. But it was my first office, and I was thrilled to pieces. A gentleman by the name of Vance came to me with a piece of paper in his hand. And I had only met this man, Vance, a couple of times. He would come in church, and he would go, and he was kind of in and out, and I just never really had enough time to even say much about the fact that I just knew his name. That's it. Hands me a piece of paper and says, Pastor, I'm, I'm considering serving in this ministry to the elderly, and you know, I'm going to be teaching, and you know, I, I'm going to be working with this parent organization to do this ministry, and blah, 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 but I need to have the pastor's signature to say that you approve of my doing this ministry. Now, imagine being me. Put yourself in my Western boots for a moment, and imagine being me for a moment. I don't know this man. What am I going to do? Am I going to just sign the form and say, I hope this works out? So what did I do? Well, believing in the idea of working with elders, I went to the elders. I said, guys, I don't know him. I don't know Vance. Um, I, I'm kind of concerned because I, 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 don't, I see him, and then I don't see him, and I see him, and I don't see him. Is he really a member in the church? And we had to have this conversation, and it was an interesting moment when the men, uh, three other elders, they looked at me and they said, to a man, they said, just sign the form. Just sign the form. Let him do it. I didn't detect a lot of enthusiasm in the room. And so I thought, uh, I think I need to ask a question here. I said, would you men sign it? Oh, no. To a man. No, no, no. <laughs> that was one of my early moments in the ministry where I thought, where am I? Okay, so you would have me sign this, but you wouldn't. Can we have a little chat now, men? 32 years old, and I'm thinking to myself, what is this? And then I was treated to a lengthy dissertation about Vance. Vance is irregular in his church attendance. He's a member, but he comes and he goes. He goes, he's rude, he's pugnacious, he fights with people. He goes to conferences, he goes to seminars, he does all these other things, but he really doesn't get along with the body. And I'm saying, and I said to the men, uh, well, have you visited with him? Have you talked to him? Have you tried to work through these matters? And no. If you try to talk to him, he gets mad. So this whole thing is like spiraling downwards now, and I'm thinking, what is this? This is what I'm thinking. I said, men, um, we are duty-bound to speak the truth in love, right? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're duty-bound to speak the truth in love Laying, laying aside the falsehood of just placating him, 
Because that's falsehood. So we asked Vance to meet with us. And it went about as well as the men predicted. He got angry, started yelling. The spittle was particularly strong. You know, there are t- there's more than one reason to wear glasses. <laughs> they help me with my sight, but they also protect me from the angry spittle that pastors sometimes get. But it's a part of the ministry. I was dumbfounded. And I thought to myself, these guys, I said, man, I love you. And in the meeting afterwards, I said, man, I love you. But you know what? You've not been helping Vance. And while this was an ugly moment, we had to have this moment because he needs help. And you're not loving him. We're not loving him if we don't try to, again, extend the hand of love with an eagerness and desire to pull him in. Be fervent in your love for one another. Don't just say, well, that's just Vance. That's the way he is. That's the way he's always been. There's no hope, in other words, is what that means. And after all that, I got letter after letter after letter from Vance telling me about what a horrible human being I was, what a horrible pastor I was. You know, all I had to do was sign the form, folks. (laughs) I had a manila folder this thick of letters from Vance after that whole thing. But what do you think? Should I have signed the form? I could have signed the form and, and maybe not had all those horrible experiences, but mark this, that is not love. And love is sometimes extremely hard. And all that we could do was extend the hand of love. And whether or not he would take it or not, that's on him. But we're not free to just give men over as if we were judges and just placate them or ignore them or just say, well, that's just the way he is. As hard of an experience as that was for a young 32-year-old pastor... It taught me lessons from the very beginning. Ignoring people's problems is not loving. It's actually a form of hate. Because if you don't really care about people enough to try to help them, and if you're more concerned about just kind of not having a bad day or getting spittle in the the glasses, if that's your priority, you're not really loving that person. It's like a parent who doesn't discipline their child. They They just give up and they just say, well, you know what? I tried. Can't do that. Secondly, placating people in this way is a violation of what Peter's talking about. He says, exercise oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily. This is my my duty, my responsibility. It's to shepherd. It's not to sign forms and just say, well, whatever. You know, if you do things with a compulsory spirit, just because you have to do it and you really kind of disdain having to do it, if you have a compulsory spirit, you may not do the thing that you know you're supposed to do. Right? Right? A shepherd is called to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience. And all of this is an expression of love. And the part that I said that I would love to go through for a long time, the idea of the shepherd proving to be an example to the flock. Brethren, I'm an imperfect man, but I'm called to be an example to the flock. And when Peter says, becoming... That participial notion means is that I need to be growing, maturing, and being a better and better example to the flock. But when leadership compromises, when leadership 
placates when leadership does not love what they're modeling, what they're exemplifying is a negative thing. It is a sinful thing, and that will be replicated within the body. Well, the leadership does it. They just placate people. I'll do that too. And then you end up with the judgment that God gives to the nation of Israel in Hosea 4.9, where the people became like the priests, like people like priests. You're becoming just like these wretched priests. Your leadership, they're wretched. You're becoming like them. It's hard for a people to rise above the, the level and of the leadership. It can be done, but it's not commonly the experience of the local body. This is why the leadership must be on guard for one another before they're on guard for the flock. I'm called to shepherd the flock of God. It's a privilege. It's a fearful privilege. And it's one that comes with trials and afflictions, but it has to be done with integrity, honesty, honesty and truth, brethren. I love thy kingdom, Lord. If we love the church of God, if we love God's kingdom, then we will all be about the business of heralding his truth and nothing else. Hymn number 280, if you'd like to use your hymnal. 280. By the way, how many people know this hymn? I'm just always curious. I love thy kingdom, Lord. Oh, please, don't make me do a solo this morning. You don't want to hear it. Okay, well, Sandra, sing. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. We are his people, his possession. May we live for his glory and his glory alone. Let's stand together. Let's sing the song. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we are your possession. We are your possession by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. May we live out our days as your possession, as those who have been bought with a price. May we live for your glory. May we stand firmly on the firm foundation of your word. And may we live our lives as Bereans, Lord who flee to your scriptures, who run to the word, knowing that this is, in fact, the very provision 
that you have given to us whereby we as your people are sanctified. As Jesus prayed, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. But Lord, help us to understand and apply the very principles that we have learned here this morning. Grow us, mature us, and sanctify us so that we can reflect the beauty and glory of Christ himself. We ask and pray all these things in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus.